0: Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy and this week The Economist asks, what do we really know about voters? My guests today are Philip Cowley, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University in London, and Rob Ford, Professor of Political Science at Manchester University. And together they're experts on all things electoral and editors of a new anthology, More Sex, Lies and the Ballot Box, bringing together a tremendous wealth of research on many aspects of voting, Everything from the question of how leaders affect referendums to how people bring their bedroom habits into the polling booth. Yes, really. So, Philip, if we start with you and our main question, how much do you think we really know about why voters vote the way they do?
1: We know enough to know that the sort of ideal type voter, the voter who uh, gathers all the information in, sits, cogitates on it, and then cast a reasoned, rational vote at the ballot box. We know enough to know that that person does not exist. Voters, like all people, are driven by emotions, they're driven by irrational feelings, they get things wrong, they're tribal, but they don't make these rational decisions and that therefore the way in which often we discuss politics as being somehow the product of policy X will trigger outcome Y, just doesn't function like that.
0: Rob, how specific do you think electoral habits and trends are to certain cultures and countries? Are there big commonalities or do the differences outweigh them?
2: There are commonalities, but there are also some differences. Uh, things wax and wane in different countries depending on the state of uh, politics in a particular place. So one example that we look at in depth is the role of partisanship in US politics. Obviously, when we're looking at the current presidential race, you can see an awful lot of fervent emotion being expressed on, on both sides. And that's now reached such a pitch of a sort of emotional engagement that partisan attachments are filtering how people think about more or less everything. And the example we have of that is Santa. Some of the American polling companies have asked, who do you think Santa would vote for? And in an earlier less tribal, less partisan era, people thought Santa was non-partisan.
0: I'm question- Questioning whether this is as new as you're su- seeming to suggest, it is. And I'm thinking uh, back to Gilbert and Sullivan: every boy and girl who's born into the world alive is either a little liberal or either a little conservative.
2: Oh yes, well, I mean, it is. It is a very old trend. It's always there in the back of our minds that tribal thinking, but the strength to which it gets expressed that waxes and wanes, and that's what we see with the Santa question. In the past, Santa was seen as above politics. Now, political affiliation has become so important to how Americans view the world that they even. want Want Santa on their team. They don't want to think of Santa as being on the other team or or even just standing aloof from it all.
0: Philip, I wondered about populism, and it's such a discussed topic at the moment. We often talk about it as if it's roughly speaking the same thing. You'll hear people put Brexit into the the magic mix alongside Donald Trump, perhaps some right wing populism in Europe, and maybe a bit of Jeremy Corbyn on, on the left in Britain did you deal with populism and try to break down whether these things have more in common or more apart?
1: Well, I think think populism is one of those words that's used a lot in political discourse, usually to mean policies or people that I don't like, outcomes I don't like, or parties I don't like, in the same way that neoliberal is used a lot just to mean things I don't like. Sometimes we talk about populism as if it's completely irrational and flawed. There's plenty of evidence that the rise in immigration led to a decline in trust, in Britain at least, both with Political institutions, but also non political institutions. It's basically just led to people trusting less. So even institutions like the police, people who are negative about immigration and think there's too much immigration are less likely to trust the police now than they were 20 or 30 years ago. Now, that's that's interesting because that also creates the space for parties to come up and respond to these frustrations.
0: And something you discuss in some interesting detail here is how much voters can be convinced to vote against their own interests. But are they really voting against their own interests or just what someone else thinks is against their interest?
2: Well, it's a little bit of both. The nature of voters' reasoning isn't entirely, you can't fit it entirely into the bin of pure Spock-like rationality, nor entirely into the bin of totally irrational. Now, a great example of this is the politics of of immigration, which is obviously very high on the agenda in many countries uh, at the moment. And if you look at how it's played out in Britain, if you ask people specific questions like how many immigrants are there in the country, how much of a threat are immigrants to your job, they're awful at answering those questions. They really don't have much idea about the scale of immigration, about the actual impact of immigration on economies or on jobs or anything like that. They get most of these questions, at least according to people who study the policy in detail, woefully wrong on those grounds. They'd fail the exam. But if you ask them something like, do you think immigration is too high or too low, their answers track the actual immigration levels pretty closely over time. So they have a sense of what's going on and they respond to it. And one of our chapters looked at what happened with immigration in the EU. And there it gets really interesting because 20 or 30 years ago, voters didn't link immigration in the EU. When did they start linking immigration in the EU? When the A8 countries joined and immigration from the EU really shot up. In the years after that, the links between views of the EU and views of Immigration gradually strengthens. So somehow, by some process of social osmosis, voters are absorbing this new fact about the country, that lots of immigration is coming in from the EU and adjusting their views accordingly.
1: Another way to look at this is, if I asked you what the temperature was in this room, you might get the answer wrong. If I asked you whether it was too hot or too cold, you might get that question right. And if I asked you, is it hotter now than it was before, you might get that question right as well. And voters function a bit like a thermostat. And I think actually expecting them to have high levels of factual knowledge. is a completely unreasonable test to expect of voters. But to expect them to respond to stimuluses, well, there, they can do that.
0: You've got uh, Sex and Lies in your title. I'm, I'm sure that's jolly useful for selling the book. But uh, sex and elections, really, how many elections are determined by what happens in the bedroom?
1: When we did the first book two years ago, and one of the chapters looked at sexual activity and found really quite different uh, both practices and fantasies between supporters of different political parties. And in particular, it found UKIP voters had fairly low, unexciting set of fantasies and sexual practices. And we actually got someone wrote to us complaining. She said she was a UKIP voter and, and her sex life was great with her husband and therefore our research was, was wrong. And the, the temptation obviously was to write back and say, well, either A, you're an outlier or B, maybe your husband's a Lib Dem because <laughs> the research showed that they were absolutely filthy.
0: And what about internationally? I mean, the British are certainly always convinced that the, the French are having a much sexier time in politics as as elsewhere. But how much do we think that either what happens in the bedroom or the perception of it has affected politics, continental Europe or beyond.
2: One thing we did look at was the degree to which people on the left or the right of the political spectrum in different countries are satisfied with their sexual lives. And we found, uh, interestingly enough, that the French are different in this respect. In most of the countries that we surveyed, people on the centre-right are the happier, and people on the centre-left are the more dissatisfied in the bedroom. In France, it's the reverse.
0: One thing I wondered at a time when money politicians complain that the public and the press is very down on them is how are politicians viewed in different countries and does it differ a lot or have we decided that they're all a bunch of scoundrels, whether we're sitting in Washington or the Midwest, London or Madrid?
1: Well I think the answer to that is yes we've decided almost everywhere that we're pretty hostile to the political class but there are some differences between countries so the British are actually less likely than the French or the Spanish for example to see their politicians as corrupt or hypocritical, but they are more likely to see them as sort of overindulged. That, that we're negative about them is the constant. What we're negative about changes from country to country.
0: And football. There is a lurid claim that football might explain Labour's post-referendum conundrum. Some of us are sceptical about this. Which of you is responsible for football?
1: Probably we both are responsible, although I'm in in a criminal court, I would get the heavier sentence, I think, for the football claim. This is based on looking at where football clubs are, looking at the constituency that they're located in, and then how that constituency voted in the referendum. And what you see really clearly in that is the sort of political geography of the Brexit vote playing out. For one thing you don't notice, which you do if you look at the party composition of those constituencies, a really obvious trend which you see with party composition, which is that the Premier League is overwhelmingly Labour, and as you move down the leagues, it becomes more Conservative. And that's because the Premier League largely is big cities and the Conservatives are not in big cities, and as you move down the leagues, you get smaller cities, towns, and they're more Conservative. If you look at the Brexit vote, you don't see that. There's almost no difference between the Premier League and, and the lower leagues, and that's because... The north-south thing and the big city thing has failed to hold for the Remain camp. It was an example of how Labour didn't deliver. The thing that I think is really telling is if you look at the club in the most pro-Remain-leaning constituency, that is Bristol Rovers in Bristol West, if you look at the club in the most pro-out constituency, that's Port Vale in Stoke-on-Trent North, they are both Labour constituencies both the most pro-Leave and the most pro-Remain, and in fact almost the second or third pro-Remain constituency is Islington North, Arsenal, Jeremy Corbyn. There is Labour's problem for you in a nutshell.
0: Rob, you were smiling seraphically as this was being laid out. Do you agree with this, that we can extrapolate problems, demographic problems for parties from minutiae like football team support or indeed other behavioural observations?
2: Well, I think that they can throw a very interesting light on things. So what the point about Port Vale and Bristol Rovers and Arsenal illustrates is that Labour and the Conservatives both have a lot of Remain voters and a lot of Leave voters but Labour is unusual in having people in places that are really at the extreme tails of the distribution in both respects. So you're getting very, very Leave-oriented places with MPs who are suddenly having to face an electorate that's really, really animated about this issue of Brexit uh, in terms of wanting to, to get out and then at the other end you've got very, very Remain places like uh, Bristol and Islington whose MPs and activists and Labour voters are equally animated in the opposite direction so it's about not just direction of preferences but what it illustrates is something about intensity of preferences too
1: can i almost turn your question around because you asked us what we can learn about politics from football one of the things we are constantly trying to do is the opposite what can we learn about people from politics sometimes people think you should study elections because they're important which is true, they are important, but things can be important without being interesting. Elections are also interesting and they're interesting because they're about people. Who votes, who doesn't, why they vote, how they behave. And I think one of the things we try to do in studying elections, and I think one of the reasons we find them so fascinating, is because of what they tell you about people.
0: How much do pollsters tell us about people and what they're going to do? You've had a long argument in Britain about how posters got the last general election on the whole rather wrong. But but as we look into the American election, do you think that there's much evidence that pollsters there will be able to avoid the kind of traps that have ended up with them often being caught out in Britain?
2: There's a couple of reasons for more optimism about the accuracy of the polling in America for the coming election. One of which is that American elections get decided state by state and you've got lots and lots of state level polling done by lots of different companies. So there's this varied ecosystem system. That helps, I think. The other thing is it really is a two-person contest, which makes it much easier uh, for the pollsters to really calibrate what they're trying to do.
0: But if that was true with an in-out you know, vote on Brexit, why was that so difficult for pollsters?
2: Because the difference with the referendum is that a referendum is a one-off event. I mean, the last one we'd had uh, on the question of the EU was in 1975. And one of the things that pollsters do when you pop the hood and look under the, the, the hood at the engine of what a poll trying to do is that they'll use people's past political behaviour who they voted for, whether they voted at all, in order to balance up the kind of sample they're getting. The problem with the referendum is that you don't have that information. You don't have any information on how they've voted on a similar question before because they haven't. And you don't have any information on whether they'll vote at all. A lot of the error you saw was in places for example, very safe areas like Sunderland Newcastle, typically quite low turnout in general elections. Lots of new people coming out to vote. How do they you as a pollster decide which ones will show up and which ones won't because one of the things people will do is they'll lie about whether they'll vote.
0: If people lie to pollsters whether they know themselves that they're lying but in the end are not telling the truth to pollsters why would that not be a problem in the upcoming American election where you have the kind of one-off kind character that is Donald Trump people feel that they should or shouldn't be in favour of him how much do we know, Philip, that they are being true to themselves, let alone to well, someone well, with a Well, I was clip or... say, I
1: mean, often it's not necessarily lying. I think lying is a very strong term. Often it's people deceiving themselves, which is slightly different. The, the bigger problem with polling usually is not that, though. The bigger problem is the issue of the representative sample. It's about hitting the right number of people of the right type of people. There's Relatively little evidence that lying or self-deception is a problem, although it is a problem. And I'll give you another good example of this. It's not just that people are wrong about whether they will vote or how they'll vote. They're often wrong about whether they did vote, even when it's only t- not not how they voted, just whether they voted. And we know this from studies that have gone back and looked at the electoral roll. Um, and the best thing about this is that it's not random. This is not just people having faulty memories, which you you know would, would understand. It's systemic. Uh, men are more likely to make this error than... Women, uh, and in particular, people who men are, get a lot of things wrong, but that maybe is a discussion for later. Uh, but also, people who really care about politics, people who think they should have voted, they are more likely to misremember their vote than people who don't care about politics. People lie when it matters to them. Um, so they're deceiving themselves even on what they did, let alone what they might do.
0: And as we look towards the November election in America, I mean, how much do we think that we're looking at a similar electorate, let alone the differences that very uh, different group of candidates have had in this race?
2: Well, one of the really critical things about this American election is the rapid pace of change in the composition of the US electorate. Uh, something that's often forgotten is that uh, if the electorate of America was only white voters, uh, the Democrats would not have won an election since 1964. Uh, white voters have voted for the Republican candidate in every single election since. And that would probably be true this time as well. On In general, Donald Trump is ahead with white voters as a whole. But America is a much more diverse place than that and it is very rapidly becoming more diverse. And that change is part of the reason that, for example, Barack Obama uh, won in 2012. Uh, He actually won with a lower share of the white electorate than Michael Dukakis won in 1988 when he lost in a landslide. So the change in America is changing the nature of its politics. It's making it possible for the Democrats to build a rainbow coalition of liberal white voters and very high shares from all minorities, that's very hard for the Republicans to beat if they rely only on white voters. And one of the issues they have with Donald Trump is that he's really doubling down on a strategy of focusing on particular grievances and resentments that are focused in the white electorate.
0: And Philip, are there certain commonalities there with European politics or are we in a completely different playing field?
1: No, I think the issue is exactly the same. As demographic change takes place in Europe, Parties of the right in particular face a real problem because their support traditionally has not come from ethnic minorities. And as the white voters that they used to rely on become a smaller part of the electorate, they have a real problem, which is that they need to try to reach out to minority voters while still retaining core support from their own white supporters that they've traditionally relied on. So in Britain, for example, in 2010, one in five Labour voters was not white. The figure for the Conservative Party is one in 20. So these are these are massively different pools of support, and one of these is a growing population, and one of these is a shrinking population, and that's a real problem, not just in America, but right across Europe.
0: I'm slightly surprised by what Philip says because certainly the economists and I and others have written a lot about the crisis of social democracy. In Europe, and you've got a lot of countries, Rob, where social democrats seem to be struggling more despite potentially having this new pool of voters that Philip described.
2: What has to be remembered is that America's further down the road uh, with this kind of change than than Europe is, but we know that the direction of travel and the likely destination is very similar. So right now, um, Europe is in a similar place to where America was in the 70s and the 80s, where you have the left basically torn between a need to appeal to immigrant and minority voters and a need to appeal to anxious white voters. Voters and not really having a winning coalition between the two groups. But fast forward 20 years and you haven't got a large enough majority white population to win from the right, then the dilemma shifts to the right of the political spectrum. Do you continue to focus on mobilising the anxieties of a white electorate that's rapidly shrinking, or do you try and move away from that, even though in that case you then risk losing some of those voters perhaps to parties further to your right? So I think that we will see that point coming, and any right wing party that thinks, well, now they're going to have control for good because the left's in a mess. Well, no, the, the, the wheel always turns in politics.
0: Rob Ford and Philip Cowley, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. And if you want to read more about elections all over the world, you can delve into our coverage at economist.com. If you'd like to share your thoughts on votes or elections anywhere in the world, well, we're better than the International Democratic Forum that is Twitter. Find us at Economist Radio. There's also email, of course, and we're radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.